For hundreds of years, the planet Mars has been the subject of heated controversy among scientists. Falcon Heavy is configured for flight. Tango Delta nominal. Five, four, three, two, main engine start, zero, and liftoff of the Delta rocket with opportunity. When you look at a planet as one little tiny dot in space, it, it really isn't representative of what's going on on the planet. It's a stretch goal. It is so audacious. We are one world, and that we are more connected than we um, give ourselves credit for a lot of the time. Hello, welcome to We Martians. I'm Jake Robbins. For nine years now, the Curiosity rover has been exploring Gale Crater with a suite of instruments designed to uncover the geologic history of Mars. One of those instruments, ChemCam, has been dutifully blasting rocks with its laser and measuring the vaporized rocks that entire time. In February, Perseverance rover landed, bringing along with it the SuperCam instrument, another similar instrument with some upgraded capabilities. And so together, these two space lasers are now working in tandem to explore the red planet in some novel ways. I wanted to learn more about the work these instruments are doing, and so I called up an old friend and my favorite expert on using these lasers to do science, Dr. Nina Lanza. All right, so we're here today with uh, three-time guests now. This is your third appearance on the show, Nina Lanza from the Los Alamos National Lab. Nina, welcome back to We Martians. Hey, Jake, it's awesome to be here three times. It's awesome. I love it. That puts you like up up at the top echelon of guests uh, in in repeat appearances. So you should feel very feel, privileged with this honor. <laughs> I feel incredibly honored. I am I'm so honored that even after our my first two times with you, that you thought I was worth talking to again. So thank you. <laughs> I love chatting with you as always. <laughs> So it's actually been, I went and looked, it's been about two years since we had you on. Um, so uh, in that time, there has been an entire global pandemic. I would love to just maybe hear a bit about what you've sort of been up to, you know, broadly in those two years. I know, especially you got a pretty big uh, promotion recently, and I would love to hear all about that. Well, sure. Yes, it has been a big uh, two years. I suppose uh, maybe the second year of those two years was probably the most uh, exciting for probably the world. Uh, so of course, um during this pandemic, we did not go to work, but we Martians are very good at working <laughs> remotely. We've always had to work remotely because, of course, our field site is pretty far. So for my team, it was pretty straightforward to transition to just working from home. Uh, we were already WebEx masters. So, you know, everyone else had to learn, but we already knew what was going on. Um, so so for us, that transition was pretty straightforward, um, although, you know, again, always a little bit um, different, you know, when you can actually, you know, stay in your pajamas all day. That's something we didn't do before. <laughs> but this year also, I did, as you mentioned, have a kind of a big promotion. Um, so I am now the PI of ChemCam. Uh, so because we have a, a team that has instruments on two different rovers, um, Roger Weens, who was the original PI of ChemCam, felt that he wanted to devote more of his attention to the SuperCam instrument, which is on Perseverance. And so because of that, um, he has entrusted me with the leadership of ChemCam, and I'm very honored to be able to lead this team. And I hope I can do uh, at least as good a job as he has. Yeah, well, I can't imagine anyone better for that job. So uh, congratulations. I'm very excited for you. That was some of the best news I got uh, recently. Ah, so. <laughs> 
Uh, cool. So yeah, I mean, so we're going to talk a little bit about both those instruments today, you know, uh, so ChemCam, the old trusty original space later, uh, still going strong on Mars in Gale Crater. And then also this uh, new fancy shiny one, SuperCam. Um, maybe since they're, I know they're, they're different instruments, but they're, they're very similar in many ways. Could you just, uh, for people who have not listened to all your previous, uh, interviews, broadly what kind of instrument is this you know what what is uh, what is what do we mean by laser what how do they work and then we can from there we'll dovetail off into the two instruments and talk a bit more about them in detail sure yeah so CamCam and SuperCam are very similar instruments um, but they have some different capabilities so the main part of uh, both CamCam and SuperCam is the laser capability and so that's the laser that we have we have a, an instrument called the laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy, or LIBS instrument, that gives us chemistry at a distance. So the way this works is that we have a laser that we focus onto a target up to seven meters away from the rover, so it's quite far. Uh, and so we vaporize a little bit of that material, and we look at the light that vaporized material makes back on the rover, uh, and then we can figure out what elements are emitting different colors of light. So that's the chemistry part. So, so that is in the name of ChemCam, chemistry and camera, which is that's short uh, for. So, but that's not the only thing that we can do with a laser. So uh, one of the things we added on SuperCam was another laser-based technique called Raman spectroscopy. We actually use the same laser that we do for the chemistry, but we actually use an optic to double the frequency. And so Raman spectroscopy is a little bit lower power. We don't vaporize rocks, but what we do is we scatter light off of molecular bonds so we can actually tell how elements are arranged. And so that really gives us a unique way to identify geologic materials because geologists need to have two pieces of information. We need to know the chemistry, the elements, what, are, what is in this rock, and we need to know the mineralogy. How are those elements arranged? And so with LIBS and Raman combined, we can actually do that in one instrument. So it's a really powerful combination of techniques. So yeah, so those that's the laser part of this. So we've got, you know, all these lasers that we're firing on Mars. Um, we also have cameras on both of these instruments because we need to know the geologic context for all this chemistry and mineralogy. Like where did we shoot on this rock? Uh, our beam sizes are quite small. So for LIBS, it's about you know, maybe half a millimeter, depending on how far you are away you are. It's a little wider for the Raman, but it's still at this very small, fine scale. Uh, so the cameras allow us to take a picture exactly where we got these analyses. And then we can actually see, well, do we hit these mineral grains? Do we hit a pebble? You know, what is it that we actually hit? So that provides us with the context. On ChemCam, this is a black and white imager. And, you know, it turns out to be so helpful that we actually made it a color imager on SuperCam. So we have these absolutely beautiful color images of where we analyzed. Um, and so with ChemCam and SuperCam, we have spectrometers to gather the light from our laser analyses, but we don't have to use them in a passive mode. We can actually use them, or excuse me, we don't have to use them in an active mode, which is with the laser. We can use them in a passive mode as well, where you just open up your shutter and collect reflected light from the sun. And that can actually give you a type of reflectance spectroscopy that gives you information also about mineralogy. Um, and so we can do both of those things with ChemCam and SuperCam. We didn't really mean to do that on ChemCam. It's actually something that one of our colleagues developed. It wasn't a capability that we actually planned on using, but it was so successful on ChemCam that we extended the range of our spectrometers on SuperCam so that we could get more um, spectral features of interest. Mm. Um, and so that's something that we've changed, but um, it, and it all came out from what we learned from, from ChemCam. So we, we brought that over to SuperCam. 
Wow, that's really interesting. I, it's, it's funny because like I, it's one of the things I like about both these instruments is how versatile they are. Like they're flexible in a lot of different ways. Um, I, I you know I love the 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 long mosaics that you can make with the the microscopic imager. It's, it's supposed to take a picture of a rock close by, but someone had the smarts to point it at a, a faraway feature, and they can you use it as like a telescope basically and then yeah these passive observations where you guys have been pointing it at the sky and just like listening for stuff there it's pretty neat that you can do all these different kinds of observations yeah it's actually you're right you know these this is not really a single instrument we have all these instruments in one and we we like to call ourselves a swiss army knife of of the instruments right? because you can actually pull out a lot of different things and even we have been really surprised on you know how how can we use our instrument to do science you know you you plan on a capability you plan on a use and then you go to mars and um you know things are different and then you realize you can actually do more than you ever thought you could do it because there are questions that you didn't think of and then you try to figure out a way to use your instrument to answer those questions and that actually leads to a lot of really cool uses of not just our instruments CamCam and SuperCam but all of the instruments that we bring aboard um you know they've i think probably everyone probably has a story of how we use the instrument in a way you know that we didn't plan on using it so it's actually really fun to see what you can do <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about ChemCam uh, in more in depth now so uh, i know there was like a, a press release earlier this year that is a big milestone because it was 3,000 sols uh, and it, i think it had a note about ChemCam 850 some thousand laser bursts which is incredible it is not a number i would have guessed i would have probably been guessing like 20 or 30,000 or something. So that's pretty cool. Um, but maybe just give us a bit of a, 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 a rundown on how it's doing. You know, what's the what's the state of the instrument uh, and what have we uh, been using it for recently? It's really remarkable how many laser shots we have done. You know, <laughs> I think we're now over like 900,000. We just keep shooting this laser um, and it's it's amazing. And each one of those shots is a spectrum. And so just to keep that in mind, that's reams of data. So there are many yeah. PhD theses waiting to be written, I'm sure. Um, yeah, so so yeah, we have been going strong. Uh, we did have a little hiccup. Um, we had an anomaly with our laser where we weren't totally sure that it was operating um, nominally. And we get a lot of state of health data down so we can kind of tell what's going on. We had some oscillation in our high voltage and we need a high voltage to be able to fire the laser. Mm -hmm. So in order to be really, really cautious with our precious instrument, uh, we stood down laser operations for 98 sols, which is actually a really long time. Uh, so folks may have noticed that we did many, many passive observations, had beautiful mosaics because we spent most of our instrument time doing those things. But of course, we love our laser and we love our chemistry. So we worked very hard behind the scenes to try to diagnose the issue with our laser and just to find a safe mode in which to operate. And, you know, I'm so proud of our team. Um, we really figured out what we needed to do, even though we're trying to diagnose something remotely, something that's on Mars, right? <laughs> you know, it's kind of far. You can't just like tinker around there. But we actually were able to recover our laser functionality. Um, and now we are doing laser analyses. We're back to it. So we're adding to that. So hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll get to a million shots sometime soon. I don't know exactly when, but every day we're shooting more lasers. So it's going to happen. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's, that's been a really, um, it's been a challenge, but it's ultimately been incredibly rewarding. And we couldn't really do this if we didn't have such a great team of people who are dedicating so much time to really fixing this instrument. You know, it's it's an older instrument, right? We expect things to go wrong. You know, it's like if mm -hmm. you leave a piece of equipment outside for nine years on Earth, you don't expect it's going to be working perfectly. Um, and 
you know, more so on Mars, right? <laughs> but, you know, it, so it's really a testament to the, the hardware's robustness that, you know, we're, we're actually able to still do this just as we were from the very first Sol on Mars. Yeah, yeah it's, it's funny you, you mentioned that about curiosity and how things, things break after a, a while, right? And that's just how it is. Because I, I had that thought about, and I was reading some update and, and it's like, oh, there was another glitch with the downlink and it missed a, this plan. And so I had to jump to the next plan. And I was like, oh man, there's a lot of like weird little glitches happening. I'm like, but I guess that's okay though, because this thing's been around for nine years on the surface and that's a, not an easy environment to persist in. Exactly, so, um, yeah. exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, and I don't I don't want to give the impression that we're an old decrepit rover on its last yeah, yeah. field or something. No, I mean, actually we're doing incredible science right now. We just have to understand that as things age, we're going to encounter new challenges and that doesn't mean we can't overcome them as we did with the, the laser anomaly, but we just, it's going to take a little bit of effort, but I, I've, mm -hmm. I've been really impressed with, you know, how much we are doing, you know, nine years later, amazing, amazing science that we're still able to do. Yeah. And so speaking of some of this amazing science, I know um, it's, it's a good time to get the laser back online because Curiosity's recently uh, it's it's transitioned into kind of a different area in Gale Crater. It was we spent a long time in this area called Glen Torridon, which was this clay bearing unit. It's a clay uh, based rocks, and now we're moving into this sulfate rich area. And yeah, I don't know too much about the geology behind that, but I, I know ChemChem is going to have a role to play in sort of characterizing that. Do you want to talk a bit about sort of the the high level science themes that we're we're dealing with right now? Sure. Yeah. So as you said, you know we're moving from an area that looks more clay bearing to one that is more sulfate bearing. And we say this because we have orbital data to suggest that this is the case. This is one of the reasons that Gale Crater was selected as a landing site initially, because it contained this wealth of mineralogies, all of which relate to water in some way. But what this transition suggests is that there was a change in the aqueous environment. We went from a, a clay bearing you know, unit, which probably suggests something that is maybe a little bit more neutral pH to a sulfate bearing one, which could be a little bit more acidic. So that kind of transition is a really important thing to note, especially as you move up section, right? Because you're moving forward in time. We start low, you know, usually, um, and that's sort of older materials. And then we move forward in time as we go up section to see um, what happened later. And so this is a, has been on our minds ever since we landed, you know, seeing this transition and what it means. Now, of course, Mars always has to make things more complicated, right? It's never <laughs> easy with Mars. So one of the things that we've been grappling with is how do we know, you know, what is the phase in which this sulfate material is in, you know, or what is the, the nature of it? Is it going to be really obvious where we see, oh, well, there's a whole bunch of evaporites. There it is, you know, um, and thus far, it hasn't been as obvious as that. We have seen some really interesting diagenetic features. So these are features that form, you know, uh, because of aqueous alteration after uh, the, the main rocks were in place. And so we see these really strange, um, bumpy, veiny, knobby features. And these do seem to be potentially the carriers of this sulfate signal. Um, but within the bedrock itself, there may not be actually more sulfate. So that's an mm, important observation. Um, if this is borne out by the rest of our exploration in this area, you know, the idea that maybe uh, instead of being um, in place evaporites where you had a body of water and then it evaporated and, and then, you know, there you are left with a deposit, a discrete deposit. It may be that these materials, these sediments were rocks that then later at some much later time had fluids flowing through them and depositing these 
sulfate materials. It's just a different way of forming, and it, it matters just so we understand what types of environments were present in Gale Crater, right? And as, as we move forward in time, you know, did Gale Crater go through wetting and drying periods, or, you know, was there water much later? These are all questions that we can answer by, you know, trying to understand where, where are these minerals of interest located? And so that's something that's ongoing right now. That's that's great, yeah. Because that's so that would kind of indicate to me. Let's see if I have this this right. That that maybe some of these, if that's true, that there there was sort of normal rocks, and then these sulfate ones were kind of flowing down into the veins and stuff. That would indicate that the sulfate stuff was further in time than we thought it was. It would be higher up the mountain, right? Exactly. Um, and I guess I I feel like we've done this before. We've had this kind of lesson where we look at something from orbit, like with Chrism data, and we get this. Oh, there's a whole. I was Vera Rubin Ridge, I think. It was like, oh, look at all this iron here. There's iron everywhere. And then you get down there, and it turns out that there's like high concentrations of iron in very like localized spots, and that was throwing off the the data because the resolution's lower. ChemCam should be able to solve that because you can you can target a vein. You can point right at a tiny little, um, you know sulfate vein in a rock there and be able to tell the difference one centimeter over i think right exactly i mean this is one of the great benefits to this technique you know we we can target individual features mm -hmm. uh, and so we can we can say well what is in this vein what is in this nodule and that's a really powerful capability because it gives us a more micro scale understanding of chemistry we also want to know bulk chemistry and we have other other instruments that are better at bulk chemistry than than chemchem because chemchem needs to have a lot of shots that we would then average together which we can do also but you know we have this very targeted capability where if we really if there's a really a difference between the bedrock and some diagenetic feature, we will be able to tell that. So that's something that um, we're working on doing now, right? We can we have been targeting these little these weird features in in the bedrock to better understand those compositions. That's really exciting. Well, what is there any um, observations that you've got yourself really excited coming up? Like I, I know we just did a, our first kind of drill uh, in this area, and we have some big mountains coming up. I, I don't know if there's anything that's you know, you're looking ahead of uh, to to really start shooting some lasers at. I mean, I want to shoot lasers at everything. So <laughs> if it's there, I'm going to shoot it. Uh, that's what I'm hoping for. I do think going into new topography, when you have sort of more, um, instead of a gradual hill up, you know, you get these, you know, more buttes and mesas that just it produces these incredible pictures. It also gives you an opportunity to get access to more stratigraphy potentially. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and so we saw that at Mont Mercou, which is this little knob that we ended up driving up on top of. It was incredible that we did that and we drilled into the top there. Uh, you know, so I think, you know, for me, like seeing topography and just understanding how chemistry changes with topography, that's our, that's our basic job. And I still think that's really exciting because Mars always gives us something weird. You know, you can't, you think you know what it's going to tell you. It's not going to tell you that. And so that's kind of the excitement of discovery, right? You know, we, we plan and then Mars just gives us something else and we figure it out. Yeah. Well, judging by how pretty the Momoku, um, uh pictures and stuff were, I'm really excited for this, the, the stuff coming up because there are some, some mountains and stuff that dwarf Momoku, uh very close on the horizon here. We're not, uh, we're not too far away from them. And we're actually really looking forward to if we can get some of that stratigraphy. Um, you may not recall, this was a while back, but the cover of the ChemCam proposal to NASA showed a drawing of the rover and ChemCam analyzing the side of a high outcrop just like that. And we were just like 
heartbroken that we weren't able to recover our laser to like recreate the cover of our proposal. <laughs> so I, I hope we have that opportunity um, to be able to do that. So maybe that's, that's what I'm looking forward to the most. Awesome. Okay. So let's talk about SuperCam then. Um, so this is the the other laser on Mars. Uh, it, we're on Sol. I'm, I I don't have it written down here. Sol 130, 140, something 140. like that. Where, where? Five. Forty-five. Uh, okay. I think so it's mid one forties. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we, uh, it's been on there for a while now. You know, it was February we landed. Uh, how is SuperCam doing? It's come online. It's 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 do, it's doing science now. Tell us a bit about how it's been operating so far. Well, SuperCam has been operating perfectly. It's so gratifying. You know, you. Um, we have amazing engineers. We build incredibly robust instruments, but the moment of truth is always when you start operating on another planet. So uh, I've been really happy, you know, just seeing the quality of data that we've been returning and just how that instrument is functioning. We haven't been able to do science on perseverance at the same cadence as we do with curiosity. And that's just because we're such a new mission. And so we have to do a lot of checkouts, there's a lot of first-time activities that we're doing. And of course, we are flying a helicopter <laughs> in all of this. Uh, so so we, are, we are operating, I would say, like slightly slower cadence. Um, and that's okay because we have plenty of time on Mars. And, you know, we've already done a lot of work just in this, you know, 145 sols that we've been there. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it seems like it's starting to get its stride, though, just the rover in general. Like, um, you know, at first, like you said, it was supporting Ingenuity. So it was kind of sitting still for a while or making little short drives. But it started really clipping recently. It was doing like 100 meter drive, 100 meter drive, 100 meter drive, like all in a row. Um, I feel like it's going to cover a lot of ground quickly. And, and once all the kinks are worked out of the joints and stuff, it'll, it'll be moving pretty fast. I think so too. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, we all understand the need to check things out, to move with caution, but gosh, are we so excited to see this stuff? Like <laughs> all of these images that we've, you know, these, there's all these landforms that we have only seen previously from orbit. And now we're here on the ground and, and like, everyone's like, I want to see this. I want to see that. And I totally relate to that. Right. Like I just want to drive up and touch everything um, because, you know, like this is, it's been years since we were first planning to go to this landing site in Jezero. And so now, you know, it's, it's hard to contain, I know at least my exuberance about seeing all these different things from the ground that I only saw from orbit before. Yeah. One of the things I've really liked about the SuperCam stuff so far is the, the, the RMI camera, the microscopic imager, they've been doing all these very dramatic shots. Cause like the, the landscape right now is kind of like very flat and there's like a lot of sand. And then there's just like these, rocks that are just kind of strewn about and each one of these rocks is like very interesting but they're just sort of like you know cast about the area and so they're doing all these dramatic shots where they zoom in right to the top of these things and so you have like this beautiful in focus like point on a rock and then a blurry background behind it and it's all in color because of the super cam ones these are i, I that's one thing i really like and so i just want to tell you that that's not a question but i just well, wanted to you, tell thank you thank you you're welcome <laughs> i mean that that's just a function of how our camera works right we we do have this really narrow field um this focus area when we do close focus like that. And so it does actually make some incredibly beautiful imagery, right? This is scientific imagery, but it's also, you could print that out and put it on your wall really easily, yeah. right? It, <laughs> and sort of when you look at those pictures, actually, because of that very uh, small depth of field where things are in focus, I think it actually makes these rocks look so much larger than they, than they are, mm -hmm. right? And we're not used to looking at rocks in that kind of detail. I find something about that to be really like meditative, actually, because we are considering the character of a rock that is so small that you could step on it 
if you were walking outside and you wouldn't even realize it was there. And here we are like examining it in this exquisite detail. And so that's what those images, you know, indicate to me. I, I kind of love that because we we tend to lose that in our everyday lives. But there's so much beauty in these simplest things, um, you know, whether it's an earth rock or a, a Mars rock. <laughs> well said, well said. Um, so you, you talked a bit about the, the the difference between SuperCam and CamCam. This Raman spectroscopy was a big, uh, a big upgrade on it. Uh, one of our listeners, uh, Kay Lindbergh, was was asking about sort of the lessons learned, and maybe what you can add to that would be now that you've been operating both instruments, are there things that you, um, are there lessons that you learned like operating ChemCam that you've applied to to SuperCam operations? Like, what's sort of been the the different experiences? you know, firing the trigger, I guess, uh, you know, per se. <laughs> yeah, I know. Sure. You know what? We have learned so much from ChemCam and our experience. There's just no way it's really hard to explain, but, you know, understanding just how a Rover operates and how, um, science is done and how, you know, what, what is the important thing that you need to know about operating your instrument? That's all stuff we had no idea about with ChemCam. We just like went in there and we had to learn on the fly, right? We didn't know anything. <laughs> but now with the experience of ChemCam, we have a much better sense just of, you know, how do we operate these instruments? What are the areas of concern? What are areas that are tricky? Uh, and and I think we're able to do more complex activities much more quickly with SuperCam because of our experience mm. with ChemCam. You know, we understand just how to do this. And I think also just understanding how a science plan is pieced together by the science team. There are hundreds of people who call in every single day. And so how do we take everyone's ideas and make a single plan that we can send to Mars? You know, it's it's not maybe it doesn't sound easy to you, but it, it's not as easy as it sounds, right? Like it sounds straightforward. <laughs> it doesn't sound easy to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's simple, but it's not easy, right? You know, well, just come up with a plan and, you know, but we have to take into account a lot of things when you do that. I just think that the, our experience with ChemCam has really set us up incredibly well to be able to, um, put all these competing things together and make decisions and offer solutions in a way that we probably couldn't when we were on Sol 145 uh, on ChemCam. And so that's, I mean, it actually is very satisfying. I'm like, oh, I've learned something. It's always nice when you have this little, you know, opportunity to check in. You're like, I haven't, you know, learned nothing in the last nine years. Actually, I have some knowledge. So that's nice. Um, so I want to talk about the microphone on SuperCam because this is uh, another upgrade that it has that I am just very excited about. Uh, you know, as the the Mars podcast, I've been waiting for this for five years or something to get the audio of this uh, of Mars to put on this. Um, and you've actually been doing a, a ton of, of work on this, so I'm really excited to pick your brain on it. Um, so this microphone is more than just I, we've got some awesome press releases. It's been like, here's the wind, here's the sound of the rover wheels. But it's more than just, you know, fun sounds. You're actually doing science with this. So can you maybe um, talk about what what you can do with this as a science instrument? How is it helping you understand the rocks or how is it complementing the rest of the uh, SuperCam data? I'm so glad that you're asking about the microphone because I too love the <laughs> microphone. Um, you know, I guess, you know, it seems like just a gee whiz thing where people were like, oh, wow, we can listen to the sounds of Mars. And I think that has value, of yeah. course, because it adds another dimension where we can really feel like we understand that the, the planet better just from a visceral sense. So I think there's value there. But that's actually not why we put a microphone on on our instrument. We actually did this for science. And I would say there's two um broad, you know, things that we can do. 
Uh, we can do, of course, we can listen to the atmosphere and all of the uh, processes that are occurring. So things like wind and dust devils, you know, vortices. Um, we can listen to the rover sounds and, uh, you know, help diagnose if there are any issues with other instruments, for example. That's another thing we can do. The main reason that we added the microphone was actually to listen to the sound of the LIBS laser zapping rocks. Um, so it turns out that when you shoot the laser, you're vaporizing material and that material is moving outward really quickly and it creates a shock wave. So it's a very sharp sound. So if you um, were listening in my lab, you'd hear something that was like a, a snapping sound, a very sharp sound. Um, and so we can actually listen to that snapping sound when we're hitting a rock and depending on how it changes shot to shot, we can learn something about the material properties of that rock, which is amazing. You know, how hard is it? How deeply is the laser penetrating? And my personal favorite, are we going any through compositional layers of interest? You know, we can actually hear the sound of the laser penetrating through a rock coating, which is, I mean, that's amazing. So we can identify the presence of a rock coating just from listening to the sound of the analysis. Now, we could, we could see compositional changes in the shot-to-shot -shot data, the LIBS data before, but sometimes, you know, a coating and its rock, they're not that different in composition. You know, if you, for example, have um, a little bit of case hardening, so that's a, a type of silica-rich coating on an earth rock, and then the rock itself has a lot of silica in it, it's very hard to uh, disentangle the signal hmm. of that coating because the coating and the rock are really similar in composition. And this is where the acoustic data comes in because you can disambiguate that. If you're like, I'm not sure I see a coating here. Maybe, maybe not. Look at the audio data oh, and you're like, oh, okay. definitely. You know, because it will, it picks, it's, it's showing you something different than the compositional data. It's telling you about the rock hardness. Um, and so that, those two pieces of information together, I think are going to be really powerful for understanding uh, how rocks have interacted with the Martian environment. You know, a rock coating is really just a recording of the rock's interaction with the atmosphere and water, and of course on Earth, also life. So these are really interesting places. Um, they're this sort of liminal space where you can actually learn a lot about what the rock has been subjected to on the surface. So we're, we're going to play some of those sounds right now. So this is from uh, Sol 12. So this so this is that snapping sound that you uh, you mentioned, but this is actually on Mars. So it sounds a little different. Uh, Sol 12, it's a distance of 3.1 meters, the press release says. So I'll play this here so the listeners can hear it. Super cool. I just love That's that. That's so cool, it's so right? Neat. That's on Mars. Um, can, can you, I, I, you've done some work too with um, sort of characterizing sound on Mars because that did sound a little, it sounded eerie, right? It's just, there's, some, there's like almost like a hollow sound to it. Can you talk a bit about the, the, the atmosphere and how it plays into how we interpret the sound and what it might be differently towards Earth? Absolutely, yeah. So the way that sound propagates is dependent on the medium through which it is propagating, right? So uh, we think of, you know, sound in air, but air on Mars is very different than air on, uh, you know, Earth. And so we, we have several things that we're going to notice right away. So first of all, the Martian atmosphere is less dense than Earth's. So that means that every sound is going to be quieter. That's just because there's fewer air molecules running into each other to, you know, propagate this, this wave. So you need to work harder. So everything's a little bit quiet. So, so, uh, you know, on Mars, people really can't hear you scream unless you're really, really close. 
Um, the Martian atmosphere is also a different composition. And so sound moves differently through primarily carbon dioxide than it does through our atmosphere, which is mostly nitrogen. So that's just, it changes how, how sound moves and how quickly it moves. And also the temperature on Mars is a little bit cooler. So sound changes um, its speed slightly uh, depending on the temperature of the air. Mm. And so all of these things combine to make sound propagation just a little bit different on Mars and on Earth. I think you wouldn't really notice if you un found yourself, very unfortunately, without your helmet <laughs> on the surface of Mars, um, as you were screaming, right, you, you know, for help, um, your voice would be very, very quiet as that, that'd be the biggest thing that you noticed. You wouldn't really notice that the speed of sound was lower, um, you know, and, and that wouldn't make a really big difference in, you know, people trying to pick up your, your voice, you know, it's not that much slower. So really that is the biggest difference between sounds recorded on Mars and on earth to our ears for the most part. But of course it's more complex than that. So you can do um, additional analyses uh, that, you know, when you look at how the sound is, well, exactly when is it hitting the microphone? These are things that can, we can learn a lot about, you know, the propagation of sound in general. Um, but we wouldn't notice that except for the very quietness of, of the sound. <laughs> yeah, it's really, um, it's it's a bizarre thing. And I almost wanted to say that it sounds like lower, like lower in pitch or something, but it's it's um, it's closer to, to a more, there's like a reverb to it. It's really bizarre. I don't know how to describe it, but. Yeah, you know, you are very observant and obviously you're an audiophile. <laughs> so it turns out we do have a little echo. So what happens is, is that the Libs sound actually hits the microphone first and then the wave travels on, hits the back of our instrument, right? Oh, so the microphone's really? on this box, <laughs> and then it comes back and hits the microphone again. <laughs> so great job, um, A plus listening for you, Jake. Uh, that is actually a real sound, and that's that's actually happening. And you can hear that too uh, if there are a lot of rocks in the area. You know, if you look at the audio file, you'll actually see like a little bit of an echo um, if there are things that are reflecting that sound back. But our biggest reflector is ourselves, our, the big wall that we put behind ourselves. So you, you, um, I'm very impressed that you heard that. Good job. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, one of our, our listeners already wanted to know, because you've done some lab work trying to simulate this, do the sounds that you got from the surface, do they match kind of what you simulated in the lab? Did you find that they were pretty close or was there something new that you learned when you got the actual data? Yeah, so we're still working on that. We're still working on kind of churning through. You know, we try to simulate Mars, um, but it's hard to do. We have to use an enormous chamber yeah. um, and, and it's not quite as, you know, it's not quite the same as just being in open air. Um, you know, but one of the things that we are really learning is that um, sound propagation is actually quite different on Mars than we thought than our model suggested. Mm. And one of the things that we weren't, we aren't really able to do very long distance experiments in the laboratory because you need a huge chamber. I, I use one that is many meters long and it's enormous because it's meant for testing spacecraft <laughs> assemblies, right? It's still not as big as what we can do on Mars. And a really good example of that is we've done recordings of the helicopter sounds as it's flown away and toward the rover. And we can actually get data points well beyond anything that we can do in the laboratory, sure, you know, yeah. hundreds of meters. And so we've had some models of the attenuation of the Martian atmosphere, just how does sound propagate? Um, but that's based on much smaller volumes, right? Even, even much shorter distances. And what we found is that those models are all wrong. They're totally wrong. <laughs> Um, and that's, 
why we do science, right? That's why we do field science. We, we go and make the measurement. And so actually having the helicopter, having ingenuity flying um, and just listening to that sound um, as it flies away and then back toward has provided us with uh, a way of refining these atmospheric models that otherwise we wouldn't have. You know, you can you can turn your microphone on um, and listen to the sound of wind, but you don't have any uh, standard, right? We The helicopter provides a standardized sound for us that we can then right, understand yeah. as it moves away from us. Um, so that's been really exciting and, and really unexpected, um, you know, because, you know, we do our best with modeling, right? But but we can be wrong. And this is just a great example of how you can't just say, well, we have models, it's good enough, make the measurement and find out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All, all models are wrong. Some are useful. That's the saying, I think, right? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> um, speaking of ingenuity, so just one of our listeners, uh, Kay Lindbergh again, could we ever get a Libs instrument on a flying platform like that? You think, would that be useful? Yes. <laughs> I would love to do that. Strafe run, laser strafe run. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's a lot of things you could do. Yeah, first you got to be careful. Everyone wear their safety glasses, right? You don't want any, you know, shooting. But but you could actually do a different kind of lib system. If you could put it on a rotorcraft, then you could actually do in situ measurements, right? You could actually land on the target that you wanted and then get a really close up measurement. Um, I don't know if I'd want to try to libs from a moving platform. <laughs> I mean, but like, I guess... Why not? Like, I haven't tried that yet. That's going to be an exciting set of field experiments we could try. Um, not impossible, right? You could actually hover in place and then shoot. What I think would be the hardest thing is actually repeat hitting the, the spot because a very small change in angle up at the instrument mm, right. is going to make a huge difference at the rocks. So you might kind of spray yeah. the rock with, you know, um, laser, which is fine. If there are no eyes in the way, then no problem. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe the, but, for, uh, the, yeah. for the meantime, I'll have to just do some land, land first and then observe right <laughs> that that's like that's the prudent thing to do so we start yeah. do the experiment then we just jump to the other one i mean but maybe you could have sort of a dual mode libs right where we have the in situ one but then you can also like flip up a mirror and then like reflect it out like as you're sitting there to get more of uh the materials in the area so yes let's do that <laughs> Uh, cool. Well, uh, Nina, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. I always enjoy catching up with you and learning about what you're working on. Um, if the listeners want to learn more about ChemCam or SuperCam or you, uh, where should they go on the internet? Oh, gosh. I, I don't know if I'm prepared to say the links <laughs> off the top of my head because I can't fully remember them. Maybe you can. Yeah, you tell uh, me the site and, I'll, and I'll, I'll research them later and we can put them in the show notes. <laughs> Yeah. So we definitely have a Kim Kim website. We have a super cam website. And of course I have a website now, actually, now I'm a real person on the internet. So mine, I can remember mine. Mine is ninolanza.com. So, um, go and say hi. Um, but yeah, and maybe I should actually link to my own instruments on that webpage. So <laughs> I will do that. Note to self. And then on Twitter, uh, at Mars Ninja, right? Yes. Which is my, yes. my favorite handle that I, I, I remember on our very first interview, I came to the realization mid-conversation that Ninja was only one letter off from Nina, and that was why right? that was why you did it. So. <laughs> that decision was made many years ago. Um, you know, maybe uh, I'm not sure that would have been maybe what I would have chosen, but uh, <laughs> I'm leaning into it. I'm not changing. That's who I am, Mars Ninja. Awesome. Come well, find me. Thanks again, Nina. This has been great, uh, and I look forward to your fourth appearance at some point in the future. Awesome. Thanks, Jake. It's been great. That's it for this week, Martians. Huge thank you to Nina for sharing these incredible stories behind these two instruments. I'm so excited to learn more about the mysteries they uncover. 
As we fade out here, enjoy this recording from the Perseverance rover Supercam microphone sampling the sounds of the winds on Mars just a few days after landing. Have a great week and at Aries Martians.